Welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 160, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. Joe Fox, who has tore himself away from life on the road as a, as a rock star. <laughs> I've, uh, I've returned after licking my wounds from losing the... The Christmas quiz again. I'm never coming on that I'm podcast never, that's again. It. But here we are. I'm back. <laughs> I don't think you'd be in an after party for like two months. Something like that, maybe. Because <laughs> Joe's in a metal band, aren't you? I am um, in a metal band. You've been uh, in the studio today. I have been in the studio today recording, so I'm a bit hoarse actually today. <laughs> uh, been a busy one, but yeah, I'm back. You have to tore me away for the night. <laughs> well, actually, last week on the show we were talking about this um, guy who's just released an album on a Sega Mega Drive, right? Um, which is pretty cool. Today, Ravi's going to tell us about this guy who's made an album using mother. Motherboard sounds in just a bit. So. Motherboard debugging sounds. So this is even more geekier. <laughs> could there be space in the band for that, do you think, Jack? I think there could. Could be an interlude at a gig. <laughs> uh, so, and also this week we're going to be talking about a classic game as well that is back for the 21st century, Toe Jam and Earl. Woo! Yeah, so they, we saw a few trailers recently, didn't we? And they had a, how Toe Jam and Earl were kind of coming into the modern age. Yeah. And having to deal with modern technology and their approach to it, these 90s characters. Been a lot of that around recently because I think, you know, Bubsy, there's like a new Bubsy game there's coming a new out, Bubsy isn't there? coming out, yeah. So, well, there already was a new Bubsy. Mm. This is a sequel to the new, to the new Bubsy. So it's the new, new Bubsy. Spyro as well. We Spyro had crashed, crashed like a couple of years ago. So, yeah, no, it's good. So, with the new Toe Jam and Earl, maybe, I sh- maybe we should save this for the interview, but maybe with the new <laughs> Toe Jam and Earl. So, it's not a reboot, it's an actual. Yeah, sequel. The, the f- fourth game, yeah. It's the fourth, fourth, fourth game. in the series. Oh, it was a third. <laughs> yeah, there was. Number three came out in 2002. Oh. Now, we need to ask Greg about that. Okay. This week, we're going to be talking to Greg Johnson, who is one of the co-creators of Toe Jam and Earl. I mean, this guy's been in the video games industry since about 1982. Wow. So he's worked on a load of stuff. And Toe Jam and Earl's kind of his baby. Um, but he is bringing it back, though. There's been like a Kickstarter that's been running. Game's finally coming out on the 1st of March. So today we're going to get the story about Toe Jam and Earl, where the ideas came from, those classic Mega Drive games back in the day, and find out a bit about the uh, the new version for 2019 as well. More on that coming up on the Retro Hour podcast in around 15 minutes from now. And also we've got some news about a handheld Mega Drive as well that um, Joe's already been eyeing up the prices on that. Yeah, I'm looking at the article. Dan always sends me the articles before, just so you know, so I know what we're talking about. <laughs> and Do I'm we? Look- yeah, <laughs> pretend I know what I'm talking about. And I'm looking at it and I'm like, I swear this is just the one that like game the retail store released like 10 years ago with Red Shell. And, the, and I'm like, how many times are we going to see this? But interestingly, it's uh, it's not. It's, it's a Japanese one made by, uh, I forget the name of the company. It's Colum- Columbia something. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me have a look. Well, we'll get more into that in a minute. We'll get more we'll into get that the in full minute. story off Ravi. <laughs> um, but before we do it, let's give a big shout to our donators before we get into this week's podcast now. The reason we accept donations on the website is to go into the running of this show. Yeah, and also the running of the website, the kind of us going to events as well, because we're going to be coming to Play Expo as well. We're going to do Manchester this year, London as well. Fantastic stuff. We've actually got a phone call when we finish today about a planning meeting for Play Expo in Manchester. It's coming together, and this is going to be... And I know we say it about pretty much all the Play Expos, but they keep getting bigger and bigger, don't they? Well, who who have we already got there? We've got Matthew Smith coming, the legend from Jet Set Willy. We've got the Nightmare crew coming there to perform Nightmare live on stage, David Rowe, some of the original artists of Nightmare, and a lot more surprises coming up as well. Yeah, so we'll keep you up to date on those over the next few weeks as we uh, announce more names, and I'm sure we'll have a little giveaway for some tickets as well. 
Uh, but obviously the reason we accept donations on our website is to allow us to do these big events and keep this podcast going week in, week out. And anything we get, 100% goes back into the running of the show. So we appreciate every penny, every cent, every dollar, every pound, every euro. And for making a donation of any amount, you will find your place in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, Dennis Beverloo. Ryan Schuler, Stephen Quing, and Cameron Armstrong, who all made donations. And you can do the same. We've got a little PayPal link in our supporters section on our website at theretrohour.com. Now, before we get into um, that handheld Mega Drive story that we need to talk about, <laughs> we've got some cool little magazines in front of us here, haven't we? Yeah. Actually, very big magazines. These are quite weighty. Yeah, so this is called Komoda and Amiga Plus. And this is a Commodore computer users magazine. Now... I was a subscriber to Amiga Future and stuff, and I, I like Amiga Future, but I was reading a lot of stuff online. Yeah. We were handed this magazine in uh, Amiga Island, yeah, and this is basically all handwritten articles, beautiful artwork on there, and they're fully going in depth about the community. You know, there's stuff that's available in this magazine that's not online, and they're doing a Polish version of it and a English translated version, and this is a beautiful magazine you know you can get it in print yeah it's 81 pages this issue i've got here so that's the thing normally about like um you know modern retro magazines apart from retro gamer obviously but kind of the the smaller ones are generally quite thin and stapled yeah this is bound it's got a glossy cover full color 81 pages i was just i literally i'm I'm holding it in my hands and i'm looking at the quality of it and i'm like this is really nice yeah like really good (laughs) i'm gonna do the, the the proper test that you have to do hang on let me just peel back the front cover you gotta sniff it. Yeah, you gotta sniff it. I was about. I was, <laughs> I was just thinking to myself. Then is he gonna sniff it? That's so, a test of a quality. That's a, yeah, that's a good. That's a good sniff. <laughs> so how, how often does this come out then? This this kind of comes out so that that's the summer autumn issue right. that you've got at the moment. So I, I guess it's seasonal at the moment. And uh, they're a small group, and their website's kaplus.pl. So it's it's a Polish website, but this is Polish and English, and it's pretty awesome. I've got issue number nine here. Yeah. We've got their memories of LucasArts. Very interesting. Yeah. Their background. We've so. done, done a couple of shows on them before, yeah. yeah. But it's great. I mean, I do love a magazine. We've talked about that on the show before. I mean, yeah, okay, you can get news and you can get articles on, on the web. And, yeah, you can sit on the toilet with an iPad, I guess. But. I, was, I was about to say, for me, whenever I go on holiday, I always yeah. like to go into the WH Smiths in the airport and I always like to find myself a retro game magazine. I can always find one and they've always got this good quality glossy pages and it just keeps me entertained on the flight you know end up reading on the beach and stuff like that so i could see 100 percent. this is one i'd probably pick up for yeah. that, that kind of instance so it's really nice you know really nice artwork like hand-drawn artwork on the front as well so what i love about mags as well is is kind of a bit of escapism if you're reading something on the web you've got like your facebook messenger popping up and twitter and oh, i'll just check that email out your attention span is so short yeah on a website but yeah yeah if you've got a magazine you're on a train well, i'll read it cover to cover as yeah 100 like so, yeah so um yeah great work guys keep up the good work on the mag and uh, if you want to get a hold of your copy of it, we'll put a link in our show notes this week at theretrohour.com. So let's talk about the 16-bit Pocket Mega Drive. <laughs> well, I, I think Pocket MD, I don't know if you can call it Pocket Mega Drive. Uh, because, trademark. Uh, yeah, trademark. <laughs> but this is uh, really good because they're actually saying in the article uh, here on Nintendo Life, uh, amazingly, they're talking about Covering Mega Drive. Mega <laughs> yeah, they're, they're saying that, you know, a lot of these... Mega Drive consoles came out and they weren't that high quality. But this one's surprising. It's actually got quite a nice screen and the D-pad's supposed to be really nice and it's got six-button support. They're saying there's still a few problems, though. Um, 
with the sound emulation, which always seems that, to be the one. Yeah. That was the thing I was about to mention is the sound emulation. It says in the article it's better than some of the, the clone consoles we've had recently, but it's still not quite quite what we're after. Yeah, they're saying really. it's the bass. You could never get the bass right on no. Mega Drive emulation. It's, it's weird, though. You'd think like that, that chip, the Yamaha chip in there, it's like... What, 1988? That was designed? Yeah. Why is it still so hard to emulate it 31 years later? God knows. It all seems to be the sticking point, isn't it? The audio. Yeah. I think what's uh, good to point out as well, though, is uh, it's actually got its own cartridge slot yeah. for a handheld. That's what I was getting to earlier on when I was rambling, was it looks like one of these one of these old knockoff ones from game. However, they never had the cartridge ports on the back, whereas this has got one, which is also... Well, obviously, it works on Japanese games because it's a Japanese company. And then uh, it does... It, it, they've said, actually, it doesn't work on Japanese games there's it's not region free but it supports the everdrive okay. which is the one that you can put the sd i mean card i'm looking in. at these yeah. pictures ravi and they're japanese cartridges so i'm just saying <laughs> <laughs> oh no Palin north american games with regent lots refuse to work yeah just put the ones you can find next to the picture <laughs> uh, i mean i'm looking at it and yeah, all right. I mean, having Mega Drive games on... I mean, the screen looks pretty nice in it from what I've seen. The button layout looks a bit weird, though. Because I know they did have the um, you know the more advanced controllers, the six-button ones, yeah. didn't they? I guess it's going to go it, for that it's approach. It's similar to that, but it's more of an angle. Yeah. I don't remember it being that much of an angle on the original six-button. Now, these slope, like, completely diagonally. Yeah, they, yeah. Complete, I think that's just to fit it onto the handheld device, though. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, I know, I know the Nomad was, like, the one that everyone wanted back in the day. Yeah, um, I mean, this is probably, with the cartridges in the top, yeah. It's only probably, what, half an inch wider than the cartridges on each side, and the Nomad was quite quite bulky, wasn't it? So this does look about, about the same, a little bit bigger maybe than an iPhone. So. Yeah. And there is something cool about putting cartridges in it and playing yeah. like, the actual game rather There's than having There's something very nostalgic about that, especially the noise of it all as well. Clunk, then I'm... Yeah. <laughs> it's not working. It's probably a lot cheaper than a Nomad yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah, probably, yeah. <laughs> I'd almost certainly say it is. I mean, I, I think any any project like this is attempting to kind of do something a little bit different with retro games and, um, you know, giving you a way to, to play them on the moves always cool as well. Because, uh, I mean, my Switch is, like, probably my most played console just because you can pick it up and yeah. while you're watching telly you can play it, which is pretty cool. Can you imagine uh, taking this on a plane or on a train with you, though, and you've got all your cartridges in your back? <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean... find having the Switch with me, like, in a few cartridges, like, oh, what a pain to carry them around. But, yeah. yeah, they're not the smallest things in the world, Mega Drive carts, are they? No, you um, probably haven't ever drive, though, but just... Just it'd be funny just to have like your favorite free games in your bag. <laughs> and the price of this, I mean, I'm looking at this article here, and apparently, like, 43 pounds. So it's not too bad. It's like, you know, it's, it's an impulse buy, really, isn't it? I'd yeah. probably get one just, just for the hell of it. But yeah, I mean, I'll wait to see a few reviews, I think, of uh, how well it runs on, on YouTube and stuff. Now, let's talk about this um, album then. Now, we did mention last week there was a techno DJ who'd um, <laughs> brought out his album on a Mega Drive, which probably wouldn't play all that well on this device here, actually, thinking about it, because um, it needs good audio emulation. Uh, but this guy had to go one better then. Yeah, so I don't know if you guys have ever built a PC. Oh, yeah. I've got now, the scars on my hands to prove. <laughs> when you have the problems with the motherboard, and you're kind of trying to work out what your problems is, you can plug this tiny little speaker in, and the motherboard will give beeps. So, like, one beep means the RAM's okay, three beeps, and there's a little code that basically will be telling you, and the motherboard okay. does diagnosis this way. Now, a guy's managed to create a full album <laughs> using these system beeps, and he's created it on YouTube, but he's also done it as a 42-kilobyte download. So you can run it on MS-DOS. an MS-DOS original <laughs> program, or yeah. you can uh, run it on a DOS emulator like DOSBox, 
and have it play in these kind of crazy system codes. So these from the PC speaker? Yeah, the yeah, speaker. yeah, the wow. little tiny That's speaker. That's amazing. Shall we listen? Okay, here's a little bit of it. Uh, and it's not like... I was thinking... Oh, wow. I was thinking it'd be one song. It's not. It's like a 26-minute album. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Nasty sounds in there, actually, isn't there? Quite grimy. I keep thinking somebody's got to kick in, like a drum bay, like a drum beat underneath. But it's awesome. It's very uh, <laughs> Mega Man esque. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think the fact that you can do that with a simple beeping speaker is that must have took ages to do that. Yeah, because you remember some of the old speaker sound effects when you play on the early DOS games. And, yeah. Like, I remember Stunt Car Racer when you'd do a jump and it would go... <laughs> it was like, you know, just a little tiny kind of noise on it the It didn't chair. even sound that good. No, yeah. <laughs> uh, But again, I mean, you know, we're talking about the creativity of the retro community. The fact that some guys made... Like, it's a concept album, essentially, It's, isn't it's it? a yeah. labour of love. Yeah, do, do it. That it's, a super, it's a super geeky labour of love, that is. I'm not sure I can listen to all 23 tracks of it, but, you know, I might have to work my way gradually through the album. Probably but, on a nightclub sound system, yeah. you'd be into that. It's not something you'd put on, like, while you're driving to work or something. <laughs> <laughs> Get myself in the mood for work. <laughs> then again, I've had days at work that maybe I'd listen to it driving. Unless you're yeah. testing motherboards. <laughs> unless, yeah, unless that is your job. <laughs> That's the thing. I wonder, like, if your motherboard did stop making those noises you'd be like oh I plugged something in wrong <laughs> but if you do want to check the whole thing somebody's going to listen to that and go oh yeah that means this is wrong with the motherboard <laughs> I heard yeah an error, error 42 tone in there yeah. somewhere so if you do want to check the full thing out um, it's all on YouTube for free you don't have to buy it and um, we'll put a link in our show notes at theretrohour.com now when you're in the high street, I mean, last week we were talking about like shops that we like going to and the experience of shopping. And um, we mentioned stuff like you're talking about the Microsoft Store that you yeah, went to. Yeah, yeah, the Windows Stores in America and, and the Apple uh, Stores, yeah. obviously, very popular places. What about a Raspberry Pi store? Well, they've just opened one in Cambridge, uh, wow. which totally makes sense because that's where the whole Raspberry Pi Foundation and everything came from. And this looks pretty awesome. You know, they've got a lot of modules for the kits and stuff. And it's just nice to see a retailer that isn't Apple or Windows, yeah. you know, having their own store. And Raspberry Pis are great. Like, I always love the idea that these were originally put out for educational school kids and then everybody else has taken up on them, turned them into all kinds of crazy devices, running them as emulators and stuff. I guess they were never kind of intended to be a mass market, were they? They were aimed at just the school kids. I wonder if you walked into the shop and you spoke to one of the uh, one of the staff members and you're like, right, I want, you know, the new Raspberry Pi because, you know, I want to illegally emulate all these retro games. I wonder if they'd be like, oh, this one's the best for that kind of thing or like what they'd actually, do you know what I mean? Yeah. I wonder well, if they'd we actually... can't condone that. Wink, yeah. wink, nudge, nudge. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but if you bought this one... <laughs> I mean, they generally do get behind most uses of it. I mean, running the emulators itself is not illegal, is it, in most cases? Yeah, yeah true. If you've got yeah. the ROMs and all that yourself. Yeah. I guess that's the way they I ripped them it. directly from the cartridges myself. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Show me a photo to prove you and all this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, there is something really special about a store that you can walk into and get mm -hmm. hands-on with stuff as well. So I always find that you know they bring out a new version of the Raspberry Pi. It hasn't been as bad with the recent ones, but there was always a time when if you didn't get them on day one, you'd have to wait about three months sometimes. Yeah, and all it would be would be the bare board. Yeah. Like, they wouldn't sell battery packs. I remember getting 
loads of power chargers for phones, trying to use them, getting the power display thing until I bought the official Raspberry Pi power supply, yeah, 2.1 amp or whatever, and that basically kept it stable. So having all these extra things are really awesome. You might have like an official case and they might have battery packs as well, but it will all be the correct kind of voltage and stuff like that. I know there's a lot of eBay stores that sell all these Raspberry Pi accessories, and some of them are bad and some are good. So yeah, you never know what you're getting yeah. off eBay, though. I, I, I remember a few years ago, you, Dan, telling me about the Raspberry Pi and stuff and how you were struggling so much to get a hold of the particular one you wanted. Yeah. And like, I just remember thinking to myself, like, why would just order it? Do you know what I mean? But yeah. it was <laughs> clearly, clearly a huge demand for it. So, well, no, the last one they brought out, they did actually make a lot more. Yeah. Um, so I think they underestimated the, I think it was the revision, the version three, I think it was, mm. the one that I struggled to, yeah, get hold of straight away because it, it did sell out really quickly. But then when they brought the next one out, the mini one, mm. so they gave it away in a magazine as well, didn't they? That uh, Raspberry Pi Zero. That yeah. was the, really I remember you one. looking for the magazine. I remember we were, we were in Manchester or Blackpool and you were like, every news agent's like, I'm just going to pop in here. See, the thing was, the mag was like a fiver. I already had a better Raspberry Pi anyway. The fact that it was free. I, I probably spent about 20 quid on petrol driving around on a Saturday night to try and get that from newsagents. But you remember there'd be all these guys that would like go into WH Smith. I remember my local Astro I went into and I asked a guy there, I was like, have you got a copy of um, this month's Magpie? Because weirdly enough, you're about the eighth person to ask me that tonight. A guy came in today and he bought like tw- all 20 copies of them. Oh, oh Put man. them on eBay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I imagine the Raspberry Pi store would sell Magpie magazine. I'd imagine. Oh, yeah. And uh, another thing is as well, like the modules that they have on there. When the Raspberry Pi first came out, there wasn't that many modules like LCD screens that yeah. you can plug onto it, the Pi camera, all these like sensors mm. and temperature stuff. But now it's been developed and there's a lot of people owning them. There's a lot more choice. So you can do tons more with your Raspberry Pi than you could before. And I wonder, with, with the Raspberry Pi store, I mean, reading, you know, there's only a short article that we've got here on uh, boingboing.net, but I imagine, you know, they're probably, they will do stuff like the Apple Store do, I imagine, where they do little workshops and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, even a, even watching the video, they yeah. had, like, Coding Corner yeah. and stuff like that, so, you know, people could probably come in and learn. Like, I, I doubt they're going to make that much money off markup off selling Raspberry Pis compared to iPad Pros, you yeah. know? <laughs> it's like... <laughs> Yeah, I think you probably buy about like 50 uh, Raspberry Pi. Yeah, I think it is more for the community and more to have a a shot front for it in Cambridge. Yeah. Well, it essentially becomes a bit of like a user group, I guess, if people are going there and they're learning programming and, you know, what to do with a Raspberry Pi. That's the one thing you always find. And, you know, we've talked about it before that everyone buys Raspberry Pis, and I've got about four or five of them. And, Mm. Most of them are like, you know, I'll do something with them, then they're sitting in a drawer doing nothing. I always see threads on forums as well. So I just bought this Raspberry Pi. What can I do with it? <laughs> like, you know, and then there's threads and threads. It's always interesting to find out what people are doing. Weather stations, generally, that seems to be the main thing. Yeah, mine's been for. a cloud server, yeah. uh, uh, a streaming little box, an MP3 player. Only thing yeah. I've ever used one for is retro games. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good for that as well. Though, it yeah. is good, though. So I got one of the, um, it's Monster Joystick, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, they do this really cool little kit where, Ravi's got one at the moment where you've got a joystick haven't you, for yeah, so I've got computers. a joystick that can remap the fire buttons for old consoles where the yeah. fire button's up, which is awesome. You just oh, okay. do a switch at the back and it assigns it to another button. Okay. Uh, Dan's got one where it's got a Raspberry Pi built in. Yeah, so it, oh, it, wow. it's um, arcade joystick parts. Yeah, somewhere. Yeah. Six ones. buttons, yeah. Clicky joystick like you had in wow. the arcade. And, but that's the Raspberry Pi. Raspberry Pi goes underneath it, yeah. yeah. Connects into the GPIO ports on top. 
output your HDMI and you can get MAME on there. And it's a great little all-in-one. You'll have to have a go when you come wow. over next. It's yeah, where did you get that from? Yo, they, sent, they sent it to me very nicely. Oh, 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 okay. oh, oh, nice. <laughs> oh where did you get that from? Oh, <laughs> uh, well. <laughs> Not in return for a shout-out. They were very kind enough to send me one. Um, but yeah, if you do want to get hold of one of those, actually, they're really good. I'll stick Amazing. a link in the Twitch show notes. Now, before we get into our interview this week, talking about Toe Jam and Earl, what you can do with the Doom engine never ceases to amaze me. How many things have we seen running on the Doom engine? What was the last one? Doom Golf. Yeah, Doom yeah. Golf we're talking about the Doom Paintball. Uh, Chocolate Doom, I remember that. Uh, Simpsons Doom back in the days. <laughs> Chocolate What <Doom>. about <laughs> Legend of Zelda running on the Doom engine? I now, need to th- see this. This guy's done it. It looks really cool. Actually, graphically... It reminds me a little bit of, like, Minecraft. It's a bit like... Yeah, it's kind of got the blocky vibe, hasn't it? Yeah, and you walk around as Link um, with your sword. And what's really cool is you go around some areas of the game and there are, like, uh, characters from different games, including the original Doom characters are in there too. So if you want to kill one of them with, like, the... Link sword, you can. But if you notice on the bottom screenshot, it's still got the dude medical pack as the kind of help <laughs> yeah. I've just noticed that. That's amazing. <laughs> so looking at it, I mean, I think graphically, like I said, Minecraft's what it makes me think of first of all. I look at it and I think, yeah, that, that kind of very blocky kind of Lego brick style graphics. But at the moment, they've kind of started this, yeah. but they haven't got the resources to finish it on their own. It's um, a crew called Exodus. Um, on Mod B, Mod DB, which I, I imagine is like the big, um, you know, Doom modding site that you. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah it's like a general database. So right. they have like old games, but also modern ones. So they have like uh, GTA and GTA Vice City. You know, ooh, do the full range and mods right. and stuff. All yeah, right, yeah. okay, got you. Well, at the moment they're saying you know they've opened this to anyone that wants to finish it off or improve upon it. So. There is a little video running on YouTube as well that kind of shows you around it and like, you can see it running. It does look really good, actually. Well, I'd like the um, kind of Doom mode in there. So if you could be a uh, Link and just get a shotgun. Yeah. <laughs> just be that would actually be brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> when I was looking at this, you know, first thing that came to my mind is Ravi would love to play this in like virtual reality. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That would yeah. be good. I don't that know is, if it made me right sick, <laughs> The Doom engine in VR, it makes me sick anyway, Doom. <laughs> yeah. like, the frame rate. <laughs> yeah, even playing it on like a CRT and stuff these days, sometimes I'm a bit like, oh, kind of feel a bit queasy. Yeah. That, but, uh, <laughs> I, I just think it's, it's amazing the things people are still doing with the Doom engine like 25 years after it came out. It's just nuts, and I'm sure we'll be seeing lots more over the... uh, I was going to say, I'm sure this isn't the end of it. (laughs) Lots of people have been turning stuff into first-person shooters. Chaos Engine. Yeah, yeah. One that was done recently on the Unreal Engine as well. Yeah. Uh, The FPS is definitely one genre that's, like, you know, stood the test of time. Resident Evil 2 Remake. Uh, somebody's already made that first person shooter oh, really? modded it already that's yeah. only been out like what two week two weeks about two weeks yeah, yeah. and yeah. That got, that's all about about five days ago <laughs> I'm sure we'll be looking at that in uh, in depth in the future Ab. <laughs> Anna showed me that and I was like no it's too smooth I want the screens <laughs> and the doors back <laughs> that <laughs> frame rate looks far too good <laughs> weird angles if I haven't had a seizure or vomited within five minutes it's not for me <laughs> <laughs> right then well that's all the news we've got for this week if you want to check out any of those stories of course we are saving the trouble of googling them we put them all in our show notes on the retrohour.com and now let's talk about the legendary Toe Jam and Earl series and about the new game that's coming out very soon as well with this week's guest, Greg Johnson. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast and it is time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Welcome to the show, Greg Johnson. Hello. Thank you for joining us, Greg. Now, um, we've timed this very well, I think, actually, because uh, Ravi and I are really excited about the return of Toe Jam and Earl. 
in a brand new game for 2019 that we will, of course, talk about in just a bit. Uh, before we get into that, though, I mean, it would be quite cool to find out a bit of history um, about, obviously, Toe Jam and Earl and you as well. I mean, what, what originally got you into video <clears throat> games? Well, you know, when I started, I'm, I'm, I am hate to say this, but kind of old. I started um, back in 1982. So when I started, video games didn't really exist yet. Uh, there were arcade games back then. You know, you would go to the <clears throat> to the bowling alley and play arcades, or we had, you know, Space Invaders, uh, tabletop games and that sort of thing. And then um, they were just coming out. You know, there was the Atari 800. It was even before the Commodore 64 uh, came out. And um, so I remember seeing my first video game when I was in college and being kind of blown away by it. And it sort of changed the direction of my life, actually. I had been... Um, I was in college studying, um, <laughs> well, biolinguistics. It was a major I had made up because my plan was to uh, talk to the dolphins and whales, figure out what their secret language was, and then be in the position to be the guy that got called in when the aliens landed. So uh, <laughs> I'd, be, I'd be talking to them. And that's what I was studying. And then my roommate brought home an Atari 800 and... Um, I stood behind him, watched him playing these games, and was like, oh my gosh, this is so fun and so cool. And he got involved with a video game, a very early video game with EA, Electronic Arts, that was just getting off the ground. They were like 20 people. And I said, oh, can I do that? Like for the summer, I thought it would be really fun. And um, so I got involved with my very first game, which was Starflight, one of EA's early games. And then I just kept doing it. Every year, I would think, oh, I'll just do this for another year and I'll go back to grad school next year. And uh, and then I, I looked up and it was like 35 years later. <laughs> so well, that's what happened. Well, how did you kind of transfer from, you know, marine stuff to programming and what language did you start on? Well, uh, let's see. You know, I worked at Scripps Institute, which is, uh, you may know, is an oceanographic institute in San Diego when I was in college. And that was in preparation for my uh, the career I thought I was going to have. And I was actually uh, coding there in basic, <laughs> which is it's so funny to think about that now. It's so, uh, so old. But, you know, I had done a bunch of coding in school, but I it, this was like a self-designed major. I was really interested in language and thinking and what happens in the brain and, and how we perceive. And I still am interested, fascinated by that stuff. So I ended up, um, oddly enough, kind of using that stuff in my gaming career creating aliens to talk to and figuring out systems for uh, how they would speak and language and personality simulation and uh, all of that kind of stuff, all of the things I had been kind of preparing for uh, in school to do research on, I ended up kind of building in a more playful way. And, um, and you'll notice a theme in a lot of my games, there's aliens. <laughs> you know, if you look at the things I've I've built and worked on over the years that keeps popping up again and again. So um, I guess I've got a bit of an obsession with that. One of the early games around that time, I mean, I, I did read that you were into um, Rogue as well, the, the dungeon crawler game. Yeah, um, that's right. When I was, so I, um, yeah, my last couple of years of school were at UC San Diego and I spent uh, many, many nights, late nights up and, you know, till uh, three or four in the morning playing Rogue. Uh, and that was in the days, you know, when you would play on a mainframe computer and they had all these little 
rooms you would go into where there was a little uh, like a, a little desk with a black and white CRT monitor. Uh, and I would sit there playing with, uh, you know, in ASCII characters, the little <laughs> characters and all and the whole game, you know, happens in your head, in your imagination. And you're being chased by vampires and zombies and collecting scrolls and potions and all that kind of stuff. But it was all just letters on the screen. But I was yeah, I was completely taken with Rogue. And so no coincidence that Toe Jam and Earl is essentially rogue under the hood. And of course, you know, that was in the days when it was rogue, there was there were no roguelikes. You just played rogue. And so Toe Jam and Earl, I guess uh, I'm trying to think if there were any other rogue uh, based games prior to TJ and E. I think we were really um, one of the first. We came out before Diablo did. Diablo was probably you know, the the biggest main other game that started the roguelike genre. But uh, we came out a few years before that. I think, you know, actually, I think Gauntlet preceded us. But I don't know if that that was an arcade game back then. It wasn't like a, um, a console game. And so they may lay claim to the first roguelike. Well, talking about your early games, I mean, Starflight, um, that was the first game that you did. I mean, what, what was the story behind Starflight then? How did that game get started and what did you want to achieve on that? So none of us knew how to make a game in those days. Nobody really did. We were all sort of making it up as we went along. Um, uh, none of us had ever built a game before. And uh, even EA, they, didn't, they'd, they had done a few games preceding us. Uh, for example, one of the games... That came before us was Archon, uh, done by a really good friend of mine, Paul Ritchie. So Paul um, was at EA before me, and he was kind of like my mentor. I didn't know what I was doing, and I remember he said to me one day, "Okay, we'll get a big piece of paper and um, write. I want you to write down everything that happens in the game on all over the floor on this big piece of paper and." connect it with lines and create kind of a network of if you do this, then that happens. If you do this, then that happens. And he said, and work backwards, start at the end and then work backwards. So that was my assignment from Paul. And he was kind of like my Yoda. You know, I would go running to Paul every time I was like, okay, Paul, now I'm confused. What should I do? And I did that. I, you know, I made a huge, huge sheet of paper for Starflight and that mapped out all of the um, causality of the game. And um, yeah, and we just um, we kind of made it up as we went along. The game was almost canceled uh, at least four or five times. You know, we were always right on the edge. It took us three, three and a half years, I think, to make that game. But um, we had very high ideals. You know, it was based um, very much on my obsession with uh, Star Trek. And I was also in those days big into Jack Vance. I don't know if you've read any Jack Vance, but... His, uh, he's very erudite and very funny, and he does all of this crazy cultural personality stuff. Um, and, with, and so a lot of, I was really into that, and so all the alien races had all of these weird personalities, and every one of them was kind of a satire on a persona of a character. So I had a lot of fun creating a universe of just weird caricatures of people in the form of all these different alien races. Um, I could ramble on a lot about it. I'm not sure what <laughs> you want me to say about it, but it's um, it was a very um, pivotal experience for me in my life as my first major game. And um, 
and there was a lot of interesting characters on the team too. Very um, unusual people who I'm still in contact with the whole team today. Well, you mentioned there that um, EA was really small at the time. What was it kind of like during those early days? Oh, yeah. Well, there was, um, you know, Trip Hawkins and Bing Gordon and Stuart Bond. Um, those were the guys running EA. They were um, young and idealistic. They had this idea that they wanted to promote uh, the artists over the games. And they had this kind of like the entertainment, you know, the music industry. They wanted to make sort of rock stars out of the artists and um, you might have seen, have you seen any of those old photos with uh, EA artists like in the black turtleneck uh, shirts and they're, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're kind of so funny and so dated looking at that stuff now. But um, that was their concept, you know, and the artists, of course, all the developers were very into that idea. And it was a very tight knit community, too. I don't know if you know this, but um, the Game Developers Conference actually started with uh the EA conference that we had every year, once a year, and we'd get together with, I don't know how many it was, maybe it started about 15 or 20 developers and it grew very slowly um, to, you know, 30 or 40 developers. And we would get together and just talk about the games we were doing. And I remember just being young and so, so excited about the day I would get to stand up there and have a finished game and talk to those developers about what I was doing. And, um, uh, yeah, Bill Budge and Danny Bunton and John Freeman and um, uh, Ray Toby, all these developers from those days who um, I just had so much respect for. And, you know, everybody was experimenting. We were all just sharing kind of what our discoveries were. And it's very so different than going to GDC these days, which is like going to E3, you know, and yeah. You're lucky if you see anybody you know, <laughs> you know. I think you made an interesting point there as well, because I think maybe EA don't quite get the credit they deserve for how far they kind of push graphics forward back in the 80s. I know their big product was Deluxe Paint, wasn't it? And that was kind of like industry standard in games for many years, wasn't it? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know if you were mentioning that just coincidentally or not, but yeah, yeah, I was. Um, I worked on Deluxe Paint in those early days, and... Um, it was a blast. Yeah, I was one of the artists that sat in the back room at EA. And it was so funny because in those days, that was before that anybody realized that you can have actual real artists doing art. It, you know, it was all just pixel pushing. And they were like, hey, can you draw? And I was like, maybe, kind of. And they said, okay, we need some art for Deluxe Paint. Sit down here and give us some artwork. And um, uh, so uh, me and um, my wife of the, at that time, were the two primary artists for that uh, that program. And um, yeah, that was actually prior even to me, well, doing a lot of development. I guess I had done Starflight before that, but it was some good, good memories. It was an exciting time, actually. I feel old saying this kind of thing. It's like talking about when you, you saw your first automobile or something. <laughs> but I, I do remember, you know, we were working with like, 16 uh, color fixed palettes, you know, and then all of a sudden, like when D-Paint came along, we could use like uh, 32 colors and choose whatever colors we wanted. It was like mind blowing at the time. Even today, though, that that, that program still, um, I still wish I had it sometimes when I'm like working in Photoshop and stuff. It was so so graceful and easy to use. Well, another project you were working on were the Caveman Olympics. Uh, what were your role 
in that. Oh, wow. You, you did your homework. That's, <laughs> that's good. Um, yeah, I, well, I was desi- the designer on that one, and I worked with uh, kind of remotely with a group in Eugene, Oregon called Dynamics. Yeah, I think it was, um, I think it was Bing Gordon that came to me and said, hey, we want you to do another game. Uh, what would you think about like a, a caveman Olympics game? I said, yeah, that sounds like a lot of fun. And um, it was a crazy game. You know, it was a multiplayer uh, game that came out on the Commodore 64. And, you know, you would compete trying to make fire and bash each other on the head with the seer sticks as you were making your fire. Or, you know, there was the clubbing event where you tried to club each other over the head. There's a lot of that kind of stuff. Or the, the pole vault over a dinosaur. Um, My friend Sean had that. We used to play it when we were kids. He had it in his Commodore 64. I think we destroyed, no we destroyed about six joysticks playing that game, I think. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's right. Oh, the event where you were being chased by a saber-toothed tiger and you had to, like, yeah, rock your joystick yeah. back and forth as fast <laughs> as you could. I think that broke a lot of joysticks. It's pretty funny. <laughs> But um, yeah, that was you know, that was a lot of fun. I got to fly back and forth to Eugene and um, work with the folks up there. They were a super great group. And oh, you know what? One thing though that's kind of funny, they did. Um, if you look at the box of Caveman Olympics and you see the photos of the developers, since they were all in Eugene and I was down in the Bay Area, they said to me, "Okay, we're going to do photos for the box, and um, we're all going to look like cavemen." So. So take a picture like that of yourself and send it to us. So, of course, I just did, and I looked like a caveman. And then when the box came out, I looked at it, and nobody else had done it. They were all just sitting there smiling. <laughs> I was the only one looking like a caveman. I was like, oh, thanks, guys. <laughs> well, another game you worked on that was, you know, the complete opposite of um, Caveman Olympics was um, FA-18 Interceptor. Yeah, yeah. I didn't do a whole lot on that, actually. All, that was when I was still... Um, pretending to be an artist and I just did the uh, cockpit art for that and uh, uh, and some other bits and pieces for that but um, but it was fun you know I I enjoyed I enjoyed that a lot yeah just very nostalgic those Mm -hmm. days sitting in a in a room playing music and doing art I couldn't imagine getting away with that now there's so many really really good artists in the industry <laughs> you know like real actual artists. Well let's get on to your uh, most famous characters. How did you come up with the characters of Toad Jaminel? Um yeah, you know, I don't know. It's the honest to gosh answer to that. They just sort of popped into my head one day. Uh it was I had been undergoing a lot of stress, you know, um not all bad stress, but making Starflight and 1 and 2 what they were um they were kind of exhausting games sort of big epic role playing adventure games and toe jam and roll came kind of after that and so i guess it wasn't too surprised that i still had aliens in my subconscious and i actually i've told this story a few times but it's because it's the truth i woke up one one night right in the middle of the night and i had i was having a dream and i had had this conversation with these two funky aliens from the from the hood talking in my head and I scribbled it down and and then went back to sleep that's sort of what they had said and then the next day I was looking at that and I just was doodling and I doodled some pictures of what they would look like and they they actually ended up looking um exactly like what I had drawn it is amazing that they literally came to you in a dream then yeah isn't that funny I mean um I've always had a very active subconscious and a lot of have just like crazy, crazy 
wild dreams. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I don't know, you know, why that is, but I wish I had a, a way of recording all that stuff. Cause I'd, I'd have enough, I'd have volumes of games, <laughs> you know, game designs and stories and stuff, but I wake up with weird bits of imagery all the time. And, um, you know, sometimes it's, it makes sense. Most of the time it doesn't. Well, were they kind of influenced by the urban culture at the time? You know, there was a lot of hip-hop coming out and there was a, I remember the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and those kind of shows. Attitude, wasn't it? Yeah. The Tude era, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, well, I grew up in um, in L.A., in um, sort of halfway between West L.A. and East L.A., and uh, it was very urban and, and back in the 70s when I was in high school. You know, I had a big afro. I don't, you might have seen some pictures of me. I'm my dad's black, my mom's white. I look white, but um, I guess through part of my career, exploring a little bit of who I am and my identity. My family is very mixed. So you, if you look at my games, you know you'll see Toe Jam and Earl are um, are clearly black characters. Yo, what's up? You know, my homeboy and all that kind of thing. And and um, Orly's draw story was a young black Jamaican girl and. Even in Doki Doki Universe, you know, there was a, a lot of cultural stuff like that. And and I've always loved um, funk music. It's been a part of who I am. And growing up, it was kind of my genre that I always listened to. And I don't mean to ever be like a pretender. I haven't had the experience of growing up looking black and all of that. Um, but I do. Um, it is part of who I am and it's real. And um, and I think Toji Monroe is kind of just an expression of that, you know, of I think it just kind of came out of my mind as uh, these characters who were part of how I think and feel, you know, and um, and I just kind of there's something about the that juxtaposition of these two very funky, cool homeboys, you know, who were in this spaceship with giant speakers blasting this funk music and then crash landing on Earth with uh, this crazy, insane, self-involved culture of all these different Earthlings and them not being able to figure out what they see around them and wanting to get the heck out of there. But that, that whole idea just just somehow struck a chord with me. You know, it's, it's all like... Uh, in hindsight, sort of post uh, anal- analysis, because I didn't really think about where, why it was what it was. It just sort of struck me as funny and felt good. It's not intellectual and it's not super deep. It's just, it's kind of was a more of an emotional expression. It was also a way to kind of cut loose too, you know, after Starflight, where I had was feeling kind of tired. I wanted to do a game that would just be fun and would uh, be lighter, lighthearted, and uh, let me crank the music in the office. And um, and my partner who made, made that game with me, Mark Borsanger, when I described the concept to him, both of the game itself and of kind of what I wanted going forward with that sort of lighter vibe and just to have fun and to do something that was silly and uh, that would let us laugh. And also part of that was making a game that would be cooperative, that we could enjoy uh, making together because we could play it. And that's partly why it was going to be a random game so that we could play it over and over again as we were building it and enjoy the process. Mark was really into all that. He was like, 
this sounds like a blast. <laughs> you know, let's let's do it. Well, you did mention about the soundtrack as well. And I mean, you know, that was awesome on the game. John Baker, I know he um, he's a lot of influence on that game. Even stuff like I read that he was really into Herbie Hancock at the time, and he kind of you know worked that in there too. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Um, so John Baker and Mark Miller were the two primaries on the uh, original soundtrack. John did most of the composition and Mark was more the kind of technical guy because um, and he deserves a lot of credit, too, because uh, Mark really pushed the boundaries on um, sound quality and on getting sort of instruments that sounded real. You know, those were the days when everything sounded, uh, you know, tweaky and 8 bit and stuff. And and so uh, he he made it sound like actual uh, basses and drums and that kind of thing. But yeah, um, John um, John has always been into funk, but he's also really into jazz. And uh, and so, um, and a, a lot of the composition, actually, I, I did as well. You know, I would sing um, songs into, uh, <laughs> in those days, it was into a tape recorder. I would go walking on the hills and in Novato and sing into the tape recorder. And then I would bring all of these to John and he would listen to them. And, and then he would sort of turn that into actual good sounding music. And then of course he came up with some on his own as well. So it was very collaborative and a lot of fun. And in fact, that's very much how we did the music on um, this new game as well, because we took about 15 of the old songs and um, remade them and then came up with about 15 new songs as well. On pretty much all of those, I, I was the genesis where I would sing into no, no longer a tape recorder, now my smartphone, and come up with the various bass lines and drum lines and here's the chorus or whatever. And then I would <laughs> grit my teeth and with a lot of embarrassment, sit there as I played it for um, Burke Trishman and Cody Wright, who is our bassist and guitar player for this. And they would have to hear me singing. But yeah, like Cody is the most amazing bass player ever. He would listen to it once and he'd go, okay, yeah, I think I got it. And then he'd pick up his bass and he would just do what I just did, but make it sound a million times better. And that's how we did the music on actually all the games. Well, one thing I also remember lots is the sound effects and kind of the slang and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah. Did you have a lot of fun recording those? I did, yeah. You know, um, so as you kind of imply there, I did pretty much all the sound effects and even sound effects you wouldn't necessarily expect to be done by voice. I It was cheaper and easier. You know, these were really the garage shop game days and... So, you know, instead of looking for the sound of a um, button press or a splash of water or something, you know, I was sitting there doing all of these whoop, boop, you know, sounds into my microphone. And I would do, do all of the voices. Some of them had to be kind of loud. So I would do it late at night after everybody else had gone out of the offices because we were in the suite of offices with all these people around us. And I couldn't, like, do, uh, you know, dentist cackles and... Uh, all of these other crazy loud sounds. So I did all of that mostly because it was cheap and practical. I had fun, of course, doing it, but that was really the reason. And then when we got to doing this, our new game, um, I, we thought we would upgrade. And um, very early on in the process, when fans started hearing uh, the audio for the new game, I was surprised because we got feedback from them saying, hey, wait a second, where's all the old crazy vocal sounds that you did 
And I, and I said, well, we, we made these sounds new. They're better, you know? And they're like, no, no, no. We want the old school stuff, you know? <laughs> Get a microphone and just do it yourself. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, we actually downgraded the sound quality in this game because of uh, what the fans were asking for, which is a little bizarre, but fun and understandable. I guess, you know, people want, the, they want to be taken back to what where they were and their childhood memories and that kind of stuff. So, you know, it all makes sense, I guess, once you, once you hear that. I remember when the game came out, I mean, some of the kids at school who had Super Nintendos were a bit jealous that they couldn't play it. How did the partnership with Sega come about then? It was just kind of happenstance. Um, uh, Sega of America had just kind of gotten started. They were just um, opened up in the Bay Area. And um, once again, just like my story with EA, these they were just, um, I don't know how many people, but uh, maybe 15 or 20 people there they didn't um they didn't even have any on staff legal yet they just had like a couple producers and uh the fellow that was the executive there his name was Hugh Bowen and um Mark and I uh, made an appointment with them I can't remember what our contact who our contact was that got us in there we went in to see Hugh and tell him about this idea, this crazy idea of these uh, funky aliens and this uh, satirical weird world that had just like everything thrown into it that you could imagine. And um, we weren't really expecting much of anything. We didn't, we knew it was kind of off the wall and didn't know if they were going to like it or think we were crazy. And I sat on the floor in Hugh's office, me and Mark um, sat there and I I put down all of these like three by five cards that I had made that um, were sort of these faux tile terrain tiles to show how the terrain would work when it was placed randomly together. And we waved our arms around and regaled him with stories of hula dancers and boogeymen and uh, crazy dentists and um, and afterwards and funk, of course, <laughs> and fun and uh, Lamont and Funkatron and all that stuff. And um, yeah, and Hugh surprised us and said, this is awesome, I love it. And we were like, really, you do? And he's like, yes. <laughs> so even for a while, we thought um, that we might be the mascot characters for Sega because Hugh loved it so much. And then he got us a producer, Scott Burfield, who also just loved the whole concept. And they were championing us being, you know, Sega's Mario. And we were gonna, we thought we were going to be in that spot. And then a while later, we got word, you know, that Sega of Japan had nixed that idea. And basically, we had been ousted by this little angry blue uh, hedgehog. And we, so, so I remember we, your, your game came out really yeah. close to Sonic, didn't it? There's only a couple of months between Toe Geminelle and the first Sonic game. Yeah, you know, I'm actually not even sure about the timing of that. It was right around the same time. And I'm not, I can't remember which one hit first. So you will know probably better than I do. But yeah, we were we were feeling like Sonic was our competitor, like he had uh, bumped us off of the out of the chair that we were all excited about being in. And I was all pissy about um, Sonic too, until I actually played it and then realized what a fun game it was. And uh, then I couldn't be too angry at it anymore. Well, one thing about kind of releasing games for consoles back then compared to nowadays you, you can easily update them and you can add new content nowadays but back then you had to have interesting things to keep people playing and uh, the random generation of levels 
uh, seemed to be a really interesting idea. Where did that come from? Yeah, um, well, um, I'd love to take full credit for that and bask in my own glory. Uh, unfortunately, um, the truth is I just, you know, that's just a straight ripoff of Rogue. And, um, you know, I can take credit for some of the things we Instead of going down in the dungeon, we uh, I flipped it upside down so that you were going up, and that allowed us to do um, some fun things like having you fall off of levels, and and of course, you know, doing the multi, making it into a multiplayer game, and doing the dynamic split screen, and all of that was original to Toe Jam and Earl. But you know, the randomness was and still is something I love in games, just in general. You know, it goes kind of hand in hand with another very old school uh, game concept, which was permadeath, you know, where you actually died in the game. Yeah. Uh, and it was so funny, you know, when we were doing Toe Jam and Earl um, 3, Mission to Earth, Sega's representatives, uh, there was visual concepts, they were sort of acting as Sega's reps. They came to me and said, hey, we want... We don't want you to do uh, stacked levels anymore. We want uh, a hub structure for this game and no more permadeath. And I was like, really? This, that's not Toe Jam and Earl. And they said, well, that's what we, that's what we want. Those mm -hmm. things are old school and they're out. Players don't want that anymore. So um, I did the dumb thing and I, I caved and I said, okay, we'll, we'll do what you want. It's your money. And after I did that and we released the game, I was looking at it and I realized, you know what? It completely doesn't work anymore because the whole idea of dying and then starting over again, but you're starting over again in a random game and that you don't know, those two things go hand in hand, right? Very clearly. That was one of the biggest regrets I had about Toe Jam and Roll 3 was that you play it once and you feel like you're done. The whole roguelike quality of playing it over and over again because and seeing how far you can get each time that is what rogue that's the at the heart of rogue and roguelike we've kind of done some major dirt to that that concept well even with the second game um panic on funkatron i mean what did sega have much influence on the design decisions of the second game and did that kind of change much over time yeah well um <laughs> i bet you know the answer to that question already but uh, i'm happy to answer it um for everybody they um so yes the answer is yes uh we were going to do a sequel to game one uh we had gotten about three or four months into building a sequel that was very much like game one you know and we had done some new things like we'd added um i remember uh ice and like swampy mud terrain and we'd added uh, caves and houses that you could go inside and uh, a few new elements and um, yeah Sega's marketing department came to us and said hey guys the game's not selling as well as we had hoped uh, we don't really know how to market this kind of game it's sort of an outlier uh, what we do know how to market is games with big characters that are side-scrolling with lots of action would you guys uh, be willing to uh, switch over and make a game like that for us? And, you know, we were young and we um, didn't. It's hard to say no to your publisher. You want to keep a good relationship and make them happy. And so, you know, we asked a few questions like, are you guys really sure that's what you want? And they said yes. So we took what we had built up to that point and we put it on the shelf and we applied ourselves to trying to figure out how on earth to do 
keep the spirit of exploration that was ToeJam and Earl and transfer that into a, a side-scrolling game. So, yeah, that's what happened. They kind of um, made us jump tracks to a new, uh, that whole new approach. And in retrospect, I think um, <laughs> to whatever extent they uh, ever think about this, the folks at Sega would probably agree that it wasn't, um, it wasn't the smartest decision from a marketing perspective. It really confused our fan base. And um, I think we created a great game, you know, and a lot of people have even our fan base is even kind of split a lot of people who played the second game before they played the first game prefer that it, it i've found that it tends to depend mostly on which game people come to first but you know it's a weird way to do a sequel something that's so completely different um and i think it just mainly confused people well i know before <laughs> you mentioned enter geminal 3 mission to earth i mean that came out quite a long time later uh, that was in 2002 so what was like the what was there such a long gap between number two and three Oh, well, um, I, I have, ever since ToeJam and Earl came out, I have periodically approached publishers every, every few years. You know, you, you get your head down building some game, and it takes a couple years, and then uh, once that's done, you have an opportunity to, you know, do pitches and try to get another game off the ground. And you have kind of a narrow window of time where because you, you, you need to survive and get something going, and so you're out there like pitching all these different ideas to publishers. At least that's how it worked in those days. It's a little different today, but uh, so I tried pitching Toe Jam and Earl uh, many times to publishers over the years, and that just happened to be one of those windows, you know. And we, with happenstance, uh, you know, pitched to a couple people um, who were running uh, Visual Concepts, who was managing. Uh, new titles for Sega, and um, yeah, and they liked the idea, or so we thought at the time. You know, like I said, they ended up wanting us to kind of change direction when we were we were about um, eight or nine months away from release. Is when they came to me and said we want we want some big changes to the title. But um, yeah, you know, we thought we were going to be building a much more um, direct and true sequel to. Game one when we started that project, and it just didn't uh, end up uh, being that way. I know it did receive quite a mixed reaction when it came out. Some people really liked it, but I know some people didn't. I mean, that, was was that a bit disappointing? Um, yeah, it definitely was. Uh, there was a number of factors with that game um, that uh, kept it from really achieving what I had hoped. Um, one of them, and the main one, probably was all of the changes that we made to the game Um like I said, you know, a, um, a hub structure and no permadeath. And they had us do a lot of things like, you know, they said we want bosses and keys and unlockables and mini games and all of the things that the games at the time that were doing really well had and we didn't have. But um, another factor was we came out on the Xbox um, because, you know, the Dreamcast got killed and we were pretty bummed about that. And we had actually built network play into the Dreamcast version and then, uh, you know, when we switched over to the Xbox, that got uh, shelved and uh, didn't get, end up get making the crossover. And then um, I had really wanted us to come out for, uh, I think it was the GameCube, and um, I can't remember if it was the PS1 or the PS2 at the time. But, um, yeah, it was just like 2002 when we released. 
Um, but, you know, uh, the Xbox, we thought we'd release first on that because it was easier to, uh, to port to the Xbox. And then, um, but that was a very hardcore um, audience at the time, mm. uh, you know, a real hardcore shooter audience. And Microsoft wanted to broaden their market base and reach out to the softer gamers. And um, that's not a great place for a title to be. So it kind of died on the vine there before we could uh, get onto the other platforms where, that would let us reach the other audiences. So I think it was partly a factor of the game itself and um, partly a factor of the audience that we, we reached. And a lot of the reviews uh, were done by Xbox reviewers who were hardcore gamers uh, in the extreme. And so, uh, you know, we just didn't really um, gel with them. They didn't, they didn't get what we were doing. So, um, yeah, but you know, actually in retrospect too, I'm, 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 I'm always glad looking back, things work out for the best. I really believe that. And I think even if we had stayed on the track we were on, we, um, looking at the game we would have made, it wouldn't have been as faithful of a, like a retro, remake like a tribute uh to the original game as what we've just made is um it's you know we were sort of obsessed with uh 3d at the time it had it was in the year 2000 that was a new thing and so we kind of went too far down that path when i look at that game now it's not a real true um like visually it doesn't really um it doesn't take you back to that original experience in the way that uh, Back in the Groove does. Well, let's talk mm-hmm. about Back in the Groove then. I mean, 17 years after <laughs> after Mission to Earth came out, which I can't believe it's been that long. Toe Jam and Earl are back in their new game, Back in the Groove then. So why was it the right time to bring these characters back now? You never know it's the right time until... Um, until the game is actually out and you can see if it's successful or not. So um, I actually don't know that yet, but we're getting very close. As you probably know, we release on March 1st. And so we'll find out <laughs> soon if it's the right time. Um, as to why I, I decided to um, just take the leap now, um, it was a combination of factors, really, um, uh, partly... I, you know, I had finished um, up my other games, and I, the last game I did was Doki Doki Universe uh, for Sony, first-party title. And I um, was trying to figure out what I wanted to get into next. And I was just, I got kind of bombarded by fans who, we talked about this just very briefly right before our call, right? The whole retro movement and how, what a resurgence there uh, has been and is what's still going on. And so... I, you know, I've been looking at that, and a lot of fans have been uh, looking at what was happening um, with, uh, you know, crowdfunding and all of the retro titles that were coming back. And everybody, I can't tell you the number of emails I got of, uh, of like, and and looking on, you know, forums and boards and stuff of like, hey, where is Toe Jam and Earl? Why aren't we seeing that? And then the thing that really tipped me over the edge was um, an article that was by um, a guy named Tom McShay, and I think it was um, GameSpot. Um, uh, I apologize to whomever if I'm wrong about that. But the article was titled, um, uh, Now is the Time for a New Toe Jam and Earl. 
And uh, it was kind of funny. It was sort of like, you know, there I am <laughs> looking at the sky saying, give me a sign, give me a sign. <laughs> and then I look down and there's the title of this article. And so that, okay, I guess uh, I'm not so thick that I'll miss that one. So that was really literally what tipped me over the edge. And I thought, okay, let's just give this a shot. And um, publishers and investors had told me that they thought the property was dead and too old to make a comeback. And, you know, and like you said, Game 3 had kind of done us some dirt in terms of uh, perception out there. And so uh, we thought we'd run the, the crowdfunding just as sort of a litmus test to see. And if we couldn't get over the bar, then we would know that it wasn't uh, really what people wanted. And, um, and we were sweating it, too. You know, it was uh, right up until the very end. Uh, I'm sure you know you get a big uh, spike at the beginning of those campaigns, and then it kind of levels out, and you uh, have to bite your nails and sweat and figure out what else you could do uh, that you're not doing. And then right at the very end, the last few days, it spikes again. And so, yeah, we had like a 400K ask and we came in at uh, just over 500. So uh, that got us off the ground. So Toja Manila in the modern era now, um, how did mm -hmm. you kind of approach this with the game? Because we've seen from the trailer, it, it looks quite hilarious. Yeah, well, good. I'm glad you feel that way. That's a good sign if you're feeling like it, the trailer looks like fun. And yeah, hilarious. I'm, I think that's a really good choice of word as well. Uh, sometimes people ask me what I care most about or hope for most with uh, the new game. And um, I usually answer with, you know, whatever pops into my head. But one of the things that pops in most often is uh, saying laughter for people. You know, one of the things I really uh, value about the gaming experience that ToeJam and Earl offers and that I hope for is for people to just completely de-stress and enjoy time together laughing and screaming and uh, being surprised and delighted. And so there's a lot of that, you know, that's a lot of what we focused on in this game. Um, and you can't make a funny game unless you're having fun yourself you know <laughs> if you're if you're sitting there um, at your desk uh giggling and laughing or going to your cohorts and saying hey hey guys you know check this out uh and feeling like oh we can't put that in the game well that's too crazy and then people going oh why not then you know you're kind of on the right path you know i have seen people i've been in boardrooms before with very serious people saying okay we need to make a game with humor. You know, <laughs> let's break this down. What is humor? And then they'll put stuff on the whiteboard about different kinds of jokes and gags and stuff. And uh, you know, and those those are the games that make you kind of cringe, yeah, <laughs> right? Laughter's not scientific. Yeah, yeah. Right. Exactly. You just got to have a good time and kind of cut loose. And that's kind of what happened in this game. I had a blast. I, I uh, especially had a lot of fun writing all of the dialogue for the characters. Um, when, you know, we've got, you've probably seen, we've got um, nine different playable characters um, in this game. So there's Toe Jam and Earl uh, in their new form. Uh, when, when our fans saw that, they were like, well, wait a second, you can't change Toe Jam and Earl. You know, you've, you've made them grow up a little bit, but we, you know, we want them to look the old way. So we, um, we give you the classic version as well. And then... Um, Letitia and Lawanda and 
Peebo and Geek Jam, and uh, who's Toe Jam's cousin, and Flo, who's Earl's mom. And you can even play with uh, new Toe Jam and old Toe Jam at the same time, you know, or, you know, new Earl and old Earl, or any combination. And they all say different things to each other when they're together. So it's really fun and funny to, um, to have, like, the new TJ and the old TJ, because they're kind of confused about the fact that they, you know, look so similar and... Uh, and they even kind of clue into the fact that one of them is the older version of the other one. And they have this kind of competitiveness thing going where they sort of take <laughs> digs at each other and stuff. And so um, anyway, I had a lot of fun with the characters and the personalities. And we also had a lot of fun creating um, uh, situations that would make players want to be mischievous with each other and playful because that's where laughter really happens is when people are playful with each other and surprise each other. So we did things like there's this, uh, there's this awesome present, uh, called the special delivery present in there. And there's a whole class of presents that only turn on when you're playing uh, multiplayer. And, um, and this present, uh, allows you to, when you open it, uh, the next present you open after that, it asks you to select a present. And then you get to select uh, the other player you want to send it to. And then they get a message wherever they are. They could be on a completely different level. It says special delivery. And then they get that whatever present you open happens to them. So you can um, you can totally help them out. You can heal them with, you know, organic food or you can um, give them a protection bubble or, you know, give them Icarus wings or whatever wonderful thing you want to bestow upon them but you can also be a total jerk and you can uh do an expel presence on them and all their presents go boof and fly out all around them all over the ground or you can give them you know rocket skates when they're standing at the edge of a ledge and they'll go flying off or you can even be a total uh evil person and you know give them a total bummer and make cause them to explode or um you know, there's a burning up present, which basically turns you on fire. On fire. It's kind of awful, but it's pretty funny, too. And you, 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 you can't stop running and you're like flaming and you have to find some water or jump off a level to put yourself out. You just know they're going to be the most popular ones, there, don't you? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, the, those presents are just so, so fun to watch people um, play and uh and people's personalities really come out too. You know, we have um, one guy in our office, one of our engineers, his name is Ko. He's got a real like devilish street. You can almost see his like little horns and tail and stuff when he's playing. And um, he's always looking for ways to, uh, you know, he'll do an expel presence on you and then put on uh, high tops and come racing up and steal all your presents as they're lying on the ground around you and stuff like that. All kinds of devilish combinations of things that we never even thought of, you know, but that's one of the fun of this game is that you can use all of your powers and presence in different, um, very creatively in different combinations. And what already excites me about the game is as well that you, it sounds like you've now made a game that you wanted to make without all the external interference. Yes, very much so. Uh, and I got to thank the universe for that. Um, I also should give a, a shout out to Adult Swim. They were our publisher for a while. Um, they, they were very, they were great. They were very hands off and let me, they were actually fans. You know, our, our producer, uh, CJ, he, he was a backer of ours. You know, 
on Kickstarter before they even picked up our game. So he was very much uh, our guardian and was like, make the game you want to make. That's what this is all about. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm so excited. It's been a wonderful aspect of this project because it is the game I've been wanting to make for forever, you know, ever since the original game and have been trying to make the sequel. So this is, this is it. (laughs) This is, this is what I've been trying to get back to. So I can't wait for people to play it. I really do think, um, uh, there'll be a lot of people who didn't get game one, who sat down at it, you know, who were like Halo fans or whatever. And were just like, what, what is this? You know, I'm just wandering around and there'll be those people still, you know, with this game. But, uh, for the people that, either loved the original game or were inclined to love that sort of thing and would have, I think this is going to really hit the spot and put smiles on people's faces. Well, Toad Jam and Earl back in the groove um, comes out on March the 1st on uh, PS4, Xbox and Switch. I've seen which yeah. I love the fact it's coming out on Switch because that's my, uh, my my main console at the moment, the Switch. So uh, I'm yeah. to see that. Yeah, I know. Same here. <laughs> but it's <laughs> Yeah, it's a great machine. Well, we'll put a link to the website in our show notes as well if people want to check out the trailers and everything. Greg, it's been wonderful getting your stories and uh, the history of Toe Jam and Earl. And uh, best of luck with the new game as well. We can't wait to play it. Yeah, thank you so much for letting me ramble. I appreciate that. And um, and, and yeah, and enjoy, you know, I, I hope I get to hear from you after you've played. I'm, uh, I'm Greg at humannaturestudios.com. So drop me a line. And, uh, and it's true for anybody that is hearing this. Uh, um, just tell me what you think. Uh, I'd love to hear. That's what this is all for, you know. So it's fun to hear people if they're enjoying the game. Amazing. Well, great. Thank been, you. Been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you.